Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Welcome to the latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor on New Civil Engineer. Today I'm joined by the rest of the news team. That's Head of Content and Engagement Rob Horgan and our reporter Catherine Kennedy to talk about what's been happening over the last month before Catherine and I take a regional look at the Carbon Net Zero Challenge with today's special guest. Hello Rob. Hi Claire. And hello Catherine. Hi Claire. So while the mainstream media has been full of lockdown and virus updates, you might be forgiven for thinking there's been no other news happening. But that really hasn't been the case in the world of civil engineering, has it? So what have been the biggest stories for you both this month? Well, HS2 Phase 2A got royal assent. So that was a big a big moment this month. So that is the West Midlands to Crewe section. So the first section of the Western leg, which eventually will go to Manchester. So the legislation for that phase has passed through both Houses of Parliament. Um, and basically that means this section is on track for further development and then eventually construction. So I think at the minute they've started ground investigation work on the route and then they're looking at awarding different contracts. So that was one big story from the month. So remind me, how long did it take for phase one to go from Royal Ascent to Notice Proceed last April? And do you think the lessons have been learned from that process? Well, well, the short answer is too long, Claire. (laughs) It took uh, three years to get from phase one being approved uh, or being given Royal Ascent, should we say, before Notice Proceed was given. Um, there was a lot of back and forth between government, HS2, LTD and its contractors over the the cost of engineering, uh, which led to a bit of a, a standoff. Um, and there was at one point, I think it was about two years ago now, there were sort of threats that the, the contracts could end up being retendered. However, obviously it didn't come to that. At the end of the day, what solved it was HS2 and the government conceding that the the costs did need to increase, which obviously was confirmed following the OKV review last year. So you would like to think that that wouldn't be a problem again now, considering the costs were also reset for phase 2A during the OKV review. One other thing in phase 2A's favour is the fact that uh, HS2 has already been preparing for it in in its contract awards for phase 1. So things like signalling contractors and M&E and fit-out contractors for phase one, they all have a provision in their contract, which would allow them to also work on phase 2A, um, which I think is a real positive, proactive step that HS2 has taken in the last few months. So as soon as notice to proceed is given, those contractors are there in place already and they will have already been working on phase one. And then another big change I suppose going forward is with phase 2B the DFT have said it will actually be split now into what it refers to as multiple more manageable bills to be passed in parliament so I suppose that's rather than this one massive bill which maybe takes longer so um, that's a, a bit of a change of approach as well. 
I think that's a lesson that has also been applied on phase one, the fact that Houston was taken off the, the critical path for the first part of phase one. And now they're looking at scaling back Houston Station as well. It's been announced this month. So splitting the, the phases up themselves into smaller manageable chunks does, does seem a, the right way to go. Yeah, that was something that Richard Robinson said to me from Atkins when I interviewed him for the um, February issue, saying that each element of HST phase one is a mega project in its own right. So you've got a series of mega projects being delivered together. So splitting it down does seem to make more sense. But with work ramping up on HS2, that's having an impact on Crossrail though, isn't it, Rob? Uh, It could well do. Uh, According to Crossrail Chief Executive Mark Wilde. It isn't right now. However, there's a big risk. uh, This is Mark Wilde's own words. There's a big risk that HS2 engineers could leave for Crossrail. And there's very little that that can be done to stop that happening. Obviously, work on Crossrail is finally winding down uh, and work on HS2 is winding up. Obviously, uh, the crossover wasn't anticipated to be quite as long as it has been because of the delays to Crossrail. But there is a real a real worry that sort of specialist engineers needed to finish the job on the Elizabeth line are, are sort of being snapped up by, by HS2 just as the, the work ramps up there. So there was um, two reports recently, one by Crossrail Project Representative Jacobs and the other by the London Assembly, which, which both concluded that Crossrail's workforce is already overstretched and under-resourced. So I, I think that's one to keep an eye on. As I said, Crossrail say they are managing it at the moment. However, it, it is a risk to, to the timeline of getting Crossrail open by next year. But it is really good to see some of the projects on Crossrail really progressing and sort of getting to the stage of being tested. Yeah, that's right. I should have mentioned that, actually. The work, work on Crossrail is is hitting the milestones that uh, sort of been set out in the revised timeline. So most recently, uh, work on Tottenham Court Road Station uh, was deemed to be sufficiently complete, which means that the process of handing over the station to TfL can now begin. Um, There's a sort of a 12-week period now from, from now until the handover is complete. That milestone was also achieved at Farringdon, can't remember if that was earlier this year or the back end of last year, but it was it was relatively recently. I get confused what month we're in. Yeah, Chris, Christmas was a bit of a blur. So it was either just before or just after Christmas. And and then over the coming months, expect that milestone to be reached at the other central London stations with Bond Street, the only question mark, really. So Network Rail have also said they've made good progress on the Crossrail connections, haven't they? Yep, so those stations... Um, at either end of the Crossrail line are ramping up. They are delayed as well, of course, but the work on those is ramping up and should should be complete in the next month or two, which is great news. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Tideway has also been making good progress with the final tunnel boring machine launch, I think it was last month. I mean, it's a project that's been quietly getting on with it, but I guess it's easier to fly under the radar compared to, say, Crossrail where you've got more interface with existing infrastructure, such as stations and people waiting to use the service. Whereas for Tideway, people won't really notice a sudden difference when it's finished, will they? No. It's one of those things, I guess, challenges working on transportation projects. But there's been a lot of talk about future projects with the Union Connectivity Review. Catherine, you've been following that story for us, haven't you? Can you give us a bit of background on what the review is and what ideas have come out of it? Yeah, so... 
I think in a previous podcast, we talked a bit about the Irish Sea Link suggestions that had come out in the, the submissions to the review. So basically, it's a it's a review of the, the connectivity uh, in the UK and what links could potentially improve that. So they're preparing this, this report, which is due out in the summer with an interim report due soon. And yeah, we have talked about the, the Irish Sea Links, but there have been other, other suggestions as well. I mean, obviously a lot of them centre on EHS2 at points. So the high-speed rail grip, they've proposed the conversion of the Y-shaped EHS2 network to an X, which could provide this connection between Cardiff and Edinburgh. And then a few other groups have really pushed for the delivery of EHS2 in full. So that refers to the, the fears that the eastern leg could be axed, which I think were first raised in October when the, the government launched its consultation on design changes to the western leg. So that's where the HS2 stuff comes in in the review. And then other projects identified, Northern Powerhouse Rail is pushed um, by the, the West Midlands Combined Authority and then TFN, Transport for the North, um, as being very important. And then East West Rail as another key, key project. So Transport East actually specifically say the development of the eastern section of that project is important. Um, so that would complete the line to Cambridge, the eastern section, the full line runs Oxford to Cambridge. Um, and that eastern section is in the planning stages at the minute. So that, I suppose, is a similar thing to, to HS2, where Transport East are saying we need the full east-west rail project, not just sections of it. And then other suggestions as well as those bigger projects are things like electrification, airport links, different line upgrades. So it's really um, really varied and it will be a really interesting read, I think, to go through the report when it does come out. So when's that due to come out? Because it sounds like some really interesting ideas now, but you know, we're going to need a big pot of money to pay for all of that. Mm-hmm. So it's the, the review is due in the summer, but they should be producing an interim report soon. So hopefully we'll have we'll have something to talk about soonish. Some great ideas there. But one thing I have noticed over the last couple of months is there have been quite a few planning inquiries in the news that have had quite controversial decisions. So there's the A303 Ilminster bypass, which was approved by Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, and that went against the advice of the planning inspectorate. And that also happened on the Stonehenge Tunnel on the same route. But it appears that Grant Shapps has also pushed through approval of the turning Manston Airport in Kent into a freight hub, which then led to a judicial review and the decision-making process being put back to the start again. Rob, you've been following that one. What happened and why is Grant Shapps appearing to continue to go against planning advice at the moment? Uh, yeah, so little old Manston Airport has been in the news probably more in the last couple of months than it has in the sort of last two decades. It was, of course, the site of the temporary lorry park at the turn of the year when the the Brexit rules came into force for real. And also with the the travel ban between uh, the UK and France because of coronavirus. Now, now that that issue is out the way and it's no longer being used as a lorry park, it finds itself at the centre of another controversy with its plans for reopening being quashed by a high court appeal. In effect, what it means is the plans haven't been ruled out indefinitely, but the the DFT or SHAPS or whoever it is needs to provide more detail about why they went against the planning inspectorate's decision. Um, in defence of SHAPS actually on this one, he didn't actually rule on this application as he, he declared a conflict of interest in the planning stage. So 
Andrew Stevenson took the decision instead, who our listeners will probably better know as the HS2 minister, although I'm not sure that's his official title, although Boris Johnson announced that there would be a dedicated HS2 minister. So I think it's part of his remit. But yeah, he, so he stepped in for Shaps and he went against the inspectorate's recommendation. And as you said, that's the third or fourth time that that's happened in, you know, in the last year, shall we say. If you, there's also a, a road scheme in Hull where Shaps went against the planning inspectorate's decision. And, and it really, in, in, um, really calls into question the point or the authority that the inspectorate has. I don't think that there's any suggestion that the inspectorate shouldn't be there. But I think it's quite right that the government should have to make a strong case as to why they would go against the inspectorate's recommendation. So I actually think this Manston decision in the High Court is a good thing for the integrity of the planning process. I know that there there are campaign groups sort of fighting for a similar outcome over the the Stonehenge and the, the A303 decisions. And it will be interesting to see how that pans out. But I think it is really important that if our elected officials are going to go against the advice of the planning inspectorate, that, that they should have a good reason for doing so and that they should make that case as strong as possible. Yeah, it's really important we have transparency on that. Just taking on the subject of airports for a moment, there'd be, there was another surprise decision, particularly given the state of the airport industry as a result of the pandemic. That was that Leeds-Bradford Airport expansion was green-lighted by Leeds City Council. Rob, can you give us some background on that one? Yeah, it was, um, it was a surprise in a way, especially when you consider the on the very same day, the French government uh, scrapped its eight, was it eight billion, I think, eight billion expansion plan of Charles de Gaulle Airport, citing the, the CCC's sixth carbon budget as reason to do so. And the planning meeting, I watched most of it, it went on for eight and a half hours and finished at 10 o'clock at night. So I did stop to have dinner at one point. But um, you could tell the councillors were really torn about what to do. So you had 24 representatives who gave evidence against expansion. And these were people like scientists, doctors, environmentalists, lawyers. Um, and then... On the other side, there was just six representatives who spoke for expansion. And these were people like the region's Chamber of Commerce and local businesses. So it was very much pegged as a business versus the environment argument. And and you could see the councillors were extremely torn in, in making their decision. And I think the vote, it was it was sort of like watching a England penalty shootout. So it sort of went... 2-0, then 2-0, then 3-2. As, uh, people on Twitter getting very excited by it while it was, <laughs> it was all going on. But um, I think at the end of the day, the main issue is that this carbon budget is just a recommendation. And this is what the chair of the the meeting was saying. Is He was saying to councillors that they had to decide themselves how much weighting to give that carbon budget because it isn't law. They're not legally obliged to deny the airport expansion on environmental grounds. And I think until that, until there is that clarity in legal terms, then these decisions will always be tight. Inevitably, they'll be, they'll be fought in the courts afterwards, like we saw with Heathrow as well. And whether they actually ever get to construction is a totally separate separate things so i think until there's some sort of clarity 
over airport expansions in the UK and what we are actually going to do. There's going to continue to be these applications for expansion. There's going to continue to be these tight decisions. And then there's going to continue to be legal fights thereafter. So you sort of need a bit of guidance. I do feel a bit sorry for these councillors because you could see you could see them, you know, they all were in support of what the environmental argument was. But at the same time, the business side of things was if you don't expand this airport, then you're denying the region a financial stream. You know, you're denying the people you serve money. So it's uh, extremely difficult. A hard decision. Yeah. I think we're all in the wrong game rather than being engineers. We should be in the legal profession some, maybe. <laughs> Talking about legal battles, um, details have emerged of the judicial review of England's second road investment strategy that Grant Shapps ignored the advice from Whitehall officials on that one. And they called for him to review the environmental impact of the road building programme when he was approving it. And apparently he didn't. It's certainly going to be an interesting one to watch as that progresses through the court. And it does put a question mark over projects planned under the strategy, which include the Lower Thames Crossing and the Stonehenge Tunnel. And I think it's it's really interesting going forward because having worked on the, the Carbon Net Zero special for our February issue, it is hard to see how these sorts of environmental concerns actually won't be central to every civil engineering project. But I suppose it's just going to take time for projects that have been planned for a long time to change tack and, and do that when it has always been about technical and financial feasibility rather than that environmental feasibility. I guess it's around the need to look at some projects differently and you've been working quite an interesting story haven't you Catherine looking at the A27 upgrade in Lewis in Sussex. It's calling the industry to do just that and and find alternative solutions to what's being proposed. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah so it's come from this um, East Sussex sustainable transport group called Skate And they've launched a competition to try and find alternative proposals to Highways England's plans for that A27 road. So Highways England are are proposing junction improvements, walking and cycling provision, and then a section of dual carriageway, which is all to deal with congestion problems, which is the main issue there. But Skate, firstly, the, the group doesn't feel that Highways England's plans address the congestion adequately, but they also think there should be more of a focus on just improving the existing road. And then this is where the environmental considerations come in for the first time, taking into account the landscape and dealing with the constraints of chalk pits, rivers, floodplains, which are all in the area. So the group in entries to this competition, they have asked that the entries specifically reflect on that context, but also on climate change, on walking and cycling. So it's a real kind of wide ranging remit. And they also, on a non-environmental note, want things like post-pandemic work and travel patterns to be taken into account. So it's an interesting um interesting design brief and one that does cover a lot of different areas. So we're going to be working with them on the results of this competition. So I'm quite looking forward to seeing what the industry comes up with, mm-hmm. what alternative creative ideas they have to this problem. So that, that's been a whirlwind tour of what's happened recently. But let's take a look now about what's coming up. We've got the budget in early March. We've got the long-awaited integrated rail plan, maybe. And Network Rail's Earthworks and Weather Prediction Task Forces are due to report soon. Rob, have you had a look into your crystal ball to see what might be coming up out of all of that? Well, the pessimist in me says that 
it won't be good news. <laughs> well, it depends what you, it depends what you clarify as good news. So, obviously, last year's budget we had the RIS two announcement. So I don't think there'll be too much on in terms of road developments. Um, so so all eyes go to rail really, where there's a lot of uncertainty at the moment. Uh, yesterday was actually the first time that I heard the suggestion that the integrated rail plan might be released at the same time as the budget announcement. Obviously, this is obviously this is just rumor and speculation but it would it would make sense to to release it at the same time as then they can pledge money for projects at the same time as as the budget so i think what we're all expecting out of the integrated rail plan is um this phasing of phase 2b of hs2 i think it's no secret that the western leg is going to is going to take precedent over the eastern leg to Leeds. Um, obviously, this hasn't been confirmed as of yet, but what I would expect if I was looking into my crystal ball is the eastern leg to be delayed some some years uh, or mothballed is a sort of popular term, but not but not cancelled. Um, and then the other interesting one is about the Northern Powerhouse Rail Programme. Obviously, the, the government has spoken a lot about its levelling up agenda. I was pretty much elected on the back of that levelling up agenda. But in the last week or so, there's been some some nervousness around its commitment towards Northern Powerhouse Rail. It's just been reading today in the, in the Yorkshire Post, actually. They've got hold of some emails where Grant Shapps has ordered Transport for the North to delay its business case until the integrated rail plan comes out. We reported on the fact that Transport for the North has some concerns or or deems delays to the program as a risk. Um, so this is sort of the first time we've really heard any sort of murmurs of uncertainty around Northern Powerhouse Rail. So hopefully we'll get some clarity on that in the in the budget and the integrated rail plan. Beyond that, I know there's is obviously as always need more money to repair local roads local bridges um we've we sort of never never stop reporting on that there's always a new survey which shows the state of our roads is deteriorating more than it was the year before so in a dream dream world there'd be more money for that obviously tfl will will need a new settlement in march as well so uh not that i'd expect that to be announced in the budget but that's another thing to look out for in the in the next few months potentially they will have got to their long-term funding agreement that uh the tfl so desperately wants so yeah it's a bit of a wait and see but with cautious optimism i guess it sounds like we're going to have plenty to talk about in next month's news review then anyway <laughs> hopefully so the engineers collective is powered by bentley systems with digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of their going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. Now it's time to welcome today's special guest, Waterman's Regional Director for Midlands, Ruth Jeffs, is joining me and Catherine to look at how the challenges of meeting carbon net zero targets differ region to region and how a one-size-fits-all approach is not always going to be the best way forward. 
as well as Ruth's role within Waterman supporting sustainable development across the region throughout her career. She is also an Association of Consultancy and Engineering Board Director and has been Chair of the Association of Consultancy and Engineering Midlands Group since 2017. Through her work with the ACE, which represents 430 member companies, Ruth helps champion infrastructure to government and other stakeholders while lobbying the government on sustainability in the sector. So welcome to the Engineers Collective, Ruth. Thanks for having me. So you've clearly been focused on environmental issues throughout your career, but how has your involvement in the Association of Consultancy and Engineering changed your perspective? I'm more aware now than ever of the need to build today for longevity, whilst also being resilient to changes in the future. In the race to net zero, the role of the engineer and of design becomes ever more important. It is about specifying operationally the right low carbon technology, whether that be electrification or hydrogen based technologies and also reducing carbon across the life of infrastructure schemes to ensure net zero compatibility. And what has surprised you then the most from taking a broader view of the industry in your Association of Consultancy and Engineering role? The willingness of the UK's leading consulting engineers to take the time to collaborate through shared ideas and solutions so we can respond to net zero as a national industry, has been an actual revelation. We know most infrastructure sectors are in themselves a long way off. Of the main sectors, rail is in the pole position, followed by buildings and waste. Energy and roads rank in the middle, with water, airports and ports following behind. We are getting better at measuring greenhouse gas emissions, but less so at mitigating and monitoring activities. The key positives we have found for net zero are societal and public sector acceptability, closely followed by private sector acceptability, clients relevant technology and encouragingly investor appetite. So with your role in the West Midlands, can you tell us what carbon net zero challenges that region faces that perhaps are different? In the West Midlands, the big areas of greenhouse gas emissions to be addressed are 32% from transport fuels, 33% from the industrial, commercial and agricultural sectors, and 35% from domestic fuels. This requires a move towards making journeys by mass transit and active travel, whilst creating and connecting clean, sustainable places. And now we're obviously all tasked with meeting the government's commitment to being carbon net zero by 2050, and that is this national target. But how do you see those challenges varying region by region? And I suppose specifically, how do you see the West Midlands challenges being different from those in London? The clarity on scenarios and pathways has improved with the sixth carbon budget report released by the Committee on Climate Change in December 2020, which has set the path to the UK's net zero emission target in 2050. This is the first carbon budget to be set into law following that commitment. Each devolved nation region is looking to address their own unique set of challenges. Typically, this involves assessing the potential for emissions reduction across various sectors 
such as buildings, transport, heat power and waste, and considering the benefits of biodiversity. The West Midlands itself is already seen as a UK leader in the research and development, as well as the manufacture of electric and autonomous vehicles, so other opportunities can be expected to be generated by the rapid growth in this sector, especially since price parity for new electric vehicles is expected by 2023-24, with the second-hand market by the end of this decade. Giving local people the skills to work in the new green industries, supporting the construction, manufacturing, transport and hospitality economic sectors in the West Midlands will also be key. So do you think there are other regional differences around the UK? Um, What additional support does the civil engineering industry need to recognise and deal with those differences, do you think? Yes, each devolved nation and region is developing their own net zero plans based on the powers and resources available to them. Understanding how the devolved nations and regions perform in which key economic sectors and following the development of their aims means the civil engineering industry can be ready with the right skills in place to help build and deliver their visions to achieve net zero. This could be through establishing the benefits of precast off-site manufacturing to minimise waste, boost efficiency and reduce secondary carbon footprints, such as journeys for materials. This may go further to include integrating the local workforce and local production of materials into contracts with the resultant secondary carbon savings, together with the economic sustainability angle, keeping the pound local to boost local economies. So there is a big carbon net zero focus, but what other factors do we need to be considering to improve the sustainability of the construction industry, do you think? Yes, it's not just about uh, net zero carbon, but also net zero water, net zero waste, and of course, nature-based solutions are also important. In addition to carbon net zero, we must also positively redress water consumption, solid waste to landfill, and remove negative ecological impacts. There are complex decisions and trade-offs the construction industry must consider, including consequences of low carbon now. For example, we are currently designing a recycling and fuel preparation facility with a lightweight structural frame. Yet we have identified the need to construct a thicker than normal reinforced floor slab to mitigate the effects of increased groundwater uplift pressures due to future fluvial flood risk attributed to climate change. Thus, the optimum net zero solution embodies more carbon now to extend the life of the facility. It's quite difficult to strike a balance between all those needs, isn't it? Definitely. And and that's the complexity that civil engineers love, of course. Yeah, that's why we all come into the industry. (laughs) But often carbon net zero comes across as a broad aspiration. I think what people feel they're lacking is examples like you gave there of how to do it and what the practical knowledge of what to do. Can you give us some other real world examples of what projects in the West Midlands have done to address the carbon net zero challenge, as well as waste net zero and water net zero? Well, here in the Midlands, West Midlands, investors are driving compliance to net zero 
and climate resilience in a way we've never seen before via mechanisms like the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. I'm currently involved in converting an office block to key worker accommodation and providing new homes for a social housing provider. In this case, finding the lowest carbon and green solutions has meant not all the solutions are available locally. Instead, priority has been given to increasing the resilience of the building to climate change through its thermal envelope to ensure the living conditions are not adversely affected by outside temperatures. Another housing scheme my team is delivering for the private sector is aimed at boosting biodiversity, quality and richness to enhance the community, thus enabling construction to continue alongside existing residents. And sort of linked to that, I suppose, in practice, what are the challenges of addressing carbon net zero in projects? And at what stage of a project should this be done? Um, do you find kind of are companies open to this or what are what are the barriers there? To understand a project's ability to address the net zero target, consideration needs to be given to both the predicted embodied and in-use carbon emissions at the inception stage of projects and with a view at each stage thereafter to establish any changes and unintended consequences of low carbon now. The most commonly cited barriers to achieving net zero are regulatory ease, technical feasibility and capacity to deliver. In the lead up to COP26 in Glasgow later this year, companies, local authorities and national government are seeking and implementing the best approaches to reach the end goal of net zero by 2050. So these barriers are actually starting to break down. And in terms of breaking down those barriers and learning what the best approach is, what do you think that other regions in the UK could learn from the West Midlands from the point of view of addressing the carbon net zero challenge? Yes, the West Midlands is focusing on the big areas to be addressed to achieve a target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions, actually by 2041, with both Solihull and Birmingham aiming for net zero carbon by 2030. This means eliminating the need for car ownership and upgraded transport networks, walking and cycling measures, and where necessary, using zero fossil fuel powered vehicles with a shift to gas or electric powered vehicles. Immediate plans include Coventry becoming an all electric bus city by 2025 and 20 new hydrogen powered double deckers to run on the new sprint route from next year. For business, it's about creating the next industrial generation around local eco supply chains, enhanced communications such as 5G to support home working, together with new investment and procurement approaches, which aim to keep benefits locally. And domestically, of course, it's about microgeneration systems, such as air source heat pumps and hydrogen-ready boilers being installed in new and refurbished homes. So is there scope for sharing, learning and increased collaboration between the regions, do you think? Do you think there's enough of that going on? There's always room for more um, sharing of learning. Uh, between the different regions 
And factoring it in will mean that uh, the regions can be at the forefront of technological development. We can also, of course, learn from each other from the impact of uh, COVID-19. It has resulted in less use of mass transit and a reliance on the car, with overall traffic levels generally only down by about 5%. Now, whilst some of those societal changes, such as more flexible working, are to be welcomed, Due to the density and diverse nature of the West Midlands, delivering net zero will require a return to the use of public transport. The flexible repurposing of buildings, moving away from offices to more flexible working, also offers the potential to repurpose commercial buildings into residential units or community hubs. Lots of different options there. But a lot of people seem to be waiting for government mandate to drive change. and But that's always going to create minimum standards and take time to come in as well. What carrot do you think the industry needs to deliver real change if the stick might be too little too late? Most environmental impacts of projects are judged against absolute local limits. Noise, air, quality, highway capacity. The current planning system is based on this. As carbon is a global issue, there is no current means of judging significance in environmental impact assessment terms of an individual project's carbon impact. There are also numerous disconnects at all stages of projects. Developments of all sizes should be assessed on their lifetime global impact on carbon emissions, with the establishment of mandatory net zero compatibility statements which would be required to accompany a planning application. These statements would need to detail predicted embodied and in-use carbon emissions and would mean a scheme's suitability at planning phase would be judged on its ability to address the net zero target. This would ensure that each development takes direct and continuous responsibility for its carbon footprint throughout its lifespan locally avoiding offsetting in remote locations. And for clients who are aiming to make their projects carbon net zero, what sort of questions should they be asking their consultants? At the outset, clients need to ask how to build carbon net zero into a project to ensure cost certainty, energy efficiency, minimal power consumption, maintainability and ease of use. Through the procurement stage, consideration also needs to be given by clients to the construction process to ensure materials and their carbon footprint delivers a carbon net zero project. So similarly, what questions should consultants and contractors be asking in order to get clients to consider change and consider new ideas to be carbon net zero? Return on investment is currently often measured in purely financial terms. But by incorporating sustainability metrics, we can help clients map the environmental performance of their assets over time. This would incentivize environmental excellence in the built environment, whilst providing tangible corporate governance evidence, moving from return on investment from purely financial terms. So thinking, I suppose, really specifically, do you think that civil engineers as individuals know enough about climate change and their role on a sort of day-to-day level in making a difference on the carbon net zero goals of the UK? Yes. 
I do believe we have a role to play and we are currently delivering many aspects of the uh, net zero promise day to day. We understand net zero has a very specific meaning to reduce emissions within a defined time frame. And to meet this challenge, we need to predict what we know now so we can embrace the next technology over the coming 20 years. So what skills do you think young engineers coming into the sector will need in order to continue delivering on sustainability? I think carbon literacy should be a fundamental aspect of our training. We should pay the same attention to net zero as we do to health and safety. I also believe we need to take a holistic approach to climate resilience rather than rely on deep specialists in different aspects of net zero, as they each need to be considered in relation to one another and not as disparate parts. So do you think addressing the carbon net zero challenge will be something that will drive more young people to study civil engineering in the future? And if not, do you think it's something as an industry we should be doing more to spell out the role of the sector in delivering on the government's targets? We all know about climate change and young people are enthusiastic about taking action and studying civil engineering offers them a real opportunity to make a difference. So I really do hope that we do um, excite young people to join us in our profession. And with COP22 in Glasgow later this year, we should certainly be showing young people during the build-up to the summit how our profession will support the delivery of the Net Zero Challenge. And on that note of thinking towards the future, how and when do you think carbon net zero will become a no-brainer to factor in? As investor climate requirements get cascaded through the value chain, net zero ambition is fast becoming net zero compliance. As the singular goal of net zero becomes mainstream, there must be a more considered shift from net zero to broader climate resilience. So we are better prepared for future climate change impacts. It's really interesting, Ruth. So I mean, our pension funds depend on it and our futures depend on it completely then. Exactly. <laughs> so thanks for joining us today, Ruth. I think there are definitely some challenges ahead for the civil engineering industry. And it's interesting to hear more about what's happening on a regional scale in the West Midlands today. Hopefully future podcasts, we can look at other regions and how they're changing and adapting and share that experience so we can all learn from each other and address the key issues. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace if possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail. Hi, 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 hi.